Okay, I'm going to be reading from Colossians 2, verse 6 till the end. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the transition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhood head bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of the principality and power. In him you were, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven, all, forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of, of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." So thank you, Sherry, for reading the scriptures for us. I just had a, a note to, uh, passed to me um, from Adrian to say that the fire department are now involved in uh, the search that's going on for Bev at the moment. And what I would just say is that they may well ask us to help later. So if you haven't got that church app on the WhatsApp uh, thing, then please talk to Joe and get your number um, added to that list uh, if she'll let you. And uh, we look forward to, um, to being able to help where we can. So a tremendous section of scripture that uh, 
uh, Sherry has just read to us. It's one, of course, that we've been looking at for the uh, last uh, few weeks. We had a little bit of inter interlude in between uh, when uh, my colleague Randy was able to share and uh, uh, Peter from New York was able to share, and it was a blessing. But we've been looking at this one verse, which is uh, two, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. And so some people say, well, you know, how can you speak so long on this particular section of Scripture? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's the overriding theme that we have been holding during the course of this time together. And you'll remember right back at the beginning uh, that there was a man who was sat in a restaurant in uh, Florida and he's surrounded. It's a restaurant surrounded by all these orange groves and there are ripe oranges everywhere on the trees. And as he looks out of the window and the waitress comes to him and says, sir, what can we get you? He, he says, I fancy... I fancy a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. Now, it's not surprising if you're surrounded by all these oranges and you're thinking to yourself, well, that just, you know, it's going to be great. So she goes away and eventually comes back and she says, I'm really sorry, sir, but we can't provide you with any orange juice because the machine's broken. And you're thinking to yourself, all these oranges and you can't get the juice. But sadly, there are many people in the Christian life who find that that's the sort of experience that they have experienced in their life. The machine is broken when it comes to the Christian life. We want to know God's very best for us. We want to know the best that he has in our lives. But however hard we try, it becomes elusive. We see it in other people's lives. We see other people who seem to depend and trust in the Lord all the time. And there's that joy that's on their face, the way they live and behave and so on. The juice is flowing. But for us, it's elusive. For you, you wonder where it is. How do we get the juice out of the orange? Well, Colossians 2 verse 6 starts off with those two words, as, or rather uh, the two words that are contained there, the small word, as, and the word, so. So as you therefore have received Jesus Christ. How did you receive Jesus Christ? By faith. Did you do anything? No. Jesus saved you, but you couldn't do anything to be saved yourself. Many of us think we can. We give it our best. We try hard. Some of us have even come up with, what did Sherry read? Philosophies? Fine-sounding arguments? And we've decided that there's another option. I don't really need God to sort this out. I can do it my way. As you therefore have received Christ, so walk in him. Well, that tells us that if Christ has done it all for us, then when we walk in our Christian life, there's nobody else who can help us except Jesus. Because we can't do it ourselves. We just cannot do it. Again, we try. And this is one of the hardest things. Where was uh, um, uh, Aaron? Aaron, was, Aaron and I were at a restaurant the other night. And uh, we prayed and said thank you to the Lord for our food. We always say pray and thank the Lord for our food, don't we? Okay? And so we did that. And also as part of our prayer, we said, Lord, give us the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. We, I think we also said help us to be kind to the staff and things like that. And sure enough, how long? A good part of the evening spent talking to the waitress who was serving us with our food. And she said this, I've tried so hard and I keep trying. 
And I've seen the signs for your church. And you keep saying there's hope in Jesus. Well, she didn't make it this morning. She goes to one of the big reformed churches around here. But she was unaware that as you receive Christ, so you walk. And that's the subject, obviously, that we're looking at this morning. Friends, that's it. As I received him, so I live in him on the basis of my own bankruptcy. Nothing to pay with. I turn and I trust him. I can't, he can. Okay? I can't, he can. I live under his lordship. Now that's the word that we spoke of last week or whatever. People don't like that word. It's too personal. It means submission. But the verse clearly says... I live under his lordship. I bring myself under instruction of the word of God. And I live, are you teachable? I spoke about the fact that when I went to school and it was parents' evening, I always dreaded parents' evenings because the, parent, the parents would hear the truth. You know, you could give your version of what happened during the course of the uh, time that you're at school. And the words, he's not teachable, were presented to my parents And there are some of us even here this morning who just aren't teachable because we will not allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and in our lives as we should do. But the scriptures say we've got to be taught. We've got to be able to listen. And then, of course, the last one that we looked at is the spirit of thankfulness. If I hold the door open and you walk through and you say thank you, you're saying thank you because you've taken the advantage of the opportunity that is given as the door has been held for you and we say thank you in our life to God for all he has done the Christian faith is a faith of thankfulness it's not a faith of please but of thankfulness and so we rejoice in that now all of that is the genuine the authentic Christian living that we have to have Remember the example that we gave of uh, how you teach someone to spot fake money? You just give them loads of the real stuff and they keep touching it and they keep feeling it. They sniff it. And they keep doing that and then suddenly you put a false one, a fake one in their hand. And if I did that to you, you'd say, I don't want it, wouldn't you? Okay, because it's not real. But it's because you knew the genuine that enabled you to spot the false. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. So what we've done over the last few weeks is to look at what the real Christian life is. I can't, he can. Okay? When you look in the mirror in the morning and you say to yourself, you know, I'm going to live the Christian life today, you've got to remind yourself that you can't, but he can, because it is Jesus living his life in us through the Holy Spirit that enables us to do it. So this is the nature of true spiritual life and true spiritual growth. But the reason why Paul is writing this is because in Colossae, there was a pseudo-faith. There was a pseudo-teaching that was going around. Uh, There was a, a spiritual life and growth that was being talked about that purported to be the real thing. People were told, this is it. You've now found it. This is real. This is the thing that you've been looking for. It, was, it purported to be the real thing. It looked real. It felt real. It smelt real, if you like. But it was a fake. It was not real. And it was especially subtle. 
For the last day of uh, the Holiday Bible Club, we had cotton candy. I'm not going to show for a, ask for a show of hands as to who likes cotton candy. But you see this big thing on the end of a stick, don't you? And it looks substantial. It looks big. And you take a bite and it just goes and vanishes. And there's hardly anything left. Because it's all puffed up. It's all air. Bit of sugar as well, but it's all air. And that is how some people see the Christian life when they touch it. They bite it and it's gone. We need to know about this because it is the danger that the church of Jesus Christ is constantly living with. We see it all around us here in the town in which we live and in every town in our country and in our world. In fact, we see it all around us. It's everywhere. Let me read uh, some verses. Verse 18, for example, let no one cheat you of your reward. Now, that's serious. I'm going to say it again. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Your reward in Jesus. Taking delight in false humility. There's that word false again. False worship. Worship of angels. Intruding into those things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Friends, we're good at doing that. We puff things up. We make them sound better, look better than they are. We convince ourselves that what we're thinking, what we're doing, the way we're living is right. And in fact, we've been so convincing ourselves, oh, we're utterly convinced of it. And other people start to be convinced of it sometimes. And you know, there's some very exotic spiritual experiences that people are talking about here in this section of Scripture. And I tell you, there are some very exotic and quite frankly mind-blowing experiences that people talk about today, spiritual experiences. But do they get the juice out of the orange? Or are they like cotton candy? But what does Paul call them? Paul calls them, or he describes them, as vainly puffed up. And it's not a compliment. Paul actually calls them idle notions, and he calls them unspiritual, which is very interesting, because they sound superficially to be super spiritual. There are things that are spoken of here in this chapter which if we had seen and heard and understood that they were going on, we'd say, wow, that's the church I want to belong to. And we see this today. But Paul then explains the cause in verse 19. And this is what he says. He says, not holding fast to the head. Wow. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Paul says, now here's the problem, friends. There are people who have lost connection with the head. Now your bodies are all going to suffer if you lose connection with the head. Okay? The French were particularly... Uh, expert at this uh, procedure you lose your head you lose connection your body's in trouble and it's the same for us because we're the body of Christ and that's what Paul is saying here 
That's what the problem is. Now, earlier in Colossians chapter 1, and by the way, Colossians is very short, and if you've got time, just read it right the way through. And if you've been following our our yearly Bible plan, you would have just done that uh, only uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and it's a tremendous little letter. It's, it's, it's full of things. But in the early chapter, chapter 1, Paul speaks of Christ being the head of the body, his church. And when a person becomes a Christian, a number of things happen simultaneously to us. And these are the things that some people wish or want or perhaps think that they have had or would like to have had, but they haven't. Some of these things are things that people are afraid of, they're scared of. But there are several things that happen simultaneously to us. And the first one is is that we receive the Spirit of God because that is the source of our new life. That's what brings the living water into our hearts and into our lives. That's what changes and transforms us. That's what gives us the new life. And we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. If you like, we're incorporated into Christ. We're made part of the church. Because we're brought into Christ. Whether we like it or not, we are part of the church. And some of us, perhaps even here this morning, are battling with that concept. They don't want to be part of the church. All that Paul is pointing out here. There is a fear about being part of the church. Perhaps the experiences of the past for some people have conjoled them into thinking that they are part of the church. And maybe it's a false understanding. There's a lot of confusion that they have on this particular point. And perhaps you were born into the church. You were baptized when you were a couple of weeks old. And your parents have told you, you're now part of the church and you're here. And, and, and this is what you need to do. And they start to tell you all the things. And you're instructed as to how you should grow and how you should live. The things that you should do. The things that you shouldn't do. The things that you should say. The things that you shouldn't say. And go on. And it begins from the very moment that you can remember the first time that you went to church. Perhaps you're afraid of responsibility in the church. I get people who say, well, I don't want to become part of uh, the church because I simply don't want to have any responsibility. And there are those that will fight responsibility all their times. And you know what? How many churches struggle to have people to do the things that we need to be doing within the church? Many times. There are times when we look around and we're desperate for help and so responsibility is another issue but how we have lived and been taught in the past must not be allowed to influence or to sway us against what scripture instructs us because we discover here very clearly that we are part of the body and Jesus is the head Jesus is what binds us and ties us together we're all different parts of the body but Jesus is the head but what Paul says What has happened here is that there are some folks, some people within the church, some people within the body who have actually lost connection with the head. Meaning that instead of living out of his strength, instead of living out of his direction, instead of living out of his will, they're doing it on their own because the connection with the head has been lost and they're like headless chicken walking around. They're doing everything they can in their own strength. Wow, what a picture. You know, sometimes I get asked to um, take services, funeral services for people in the community, those that aren't saved. And it's a terribly hard thing to do because what do you say? And I often have a, a real sense of sadness when someone will say to me, oh, 
And he'd love to have the hymn, the song rather, the, the song, I did it my way. Okay? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you did do it your way. And there's absolutely no evidence of salvation that you know and love the Lord Jesus, that you've been brought into his kingdom. I did it my way? No. If we do that, we'll fail. We do it his way every time. They're living a Christian life that doesn't have its roots in Christ. They're living in their own discipline. They're living in their own ability. And what happens then is very interesting and it's very subtle and it's this. Paul points out that some have replaced the internal, the spiritual life that only God imparts. They've replaced it by external rules and regulations. They have exchanged the internal spiritual life of Christ living his life in us with rules and regulations and traditions. Some of them, yes, are biblical. But it's futile. They want to try and measure their spiritual progress even. But the futility sets in because of the standard that they're measuring it against. And it is so sad that there are huge numbers of people who live like this. They're tired trying, but they continue to try. They've been pushing this massive rock uphill for years, for decades even. And they're terrified that it's going to suddenly start rolling backwards and crush them. Because they haven't realized that it is only in him. I can't, he can. I can't do it, he can do it. In fact, only he can do it. You see, we all need some sort of regulation or regulated behavior, if you like. We all need some marks by which we might be able to measure that. Yes, that we're getting somewhere that encourages us to keep on track. But when it ceases to be your relationship with Jesus Christ, and when it starts to be that you look at the chap next door to you, the girl across the aisle, you're in trouble. Because you've taken your eyes off of him and your connection with the head is broken. Jesus Christ that needs to, that we need to have to characterize genuine spiritual life. And it becomes instead not a life that works from the inside out. The Spirit of God living in us and working inside us so that people look at us and they say, He's a believer. Because what's inside him has appeared outside him. The Spirit of God in us expressing himself in us. And what they have is legalism. It works from the outside 
I keep the rules and they can be proud in saying that. I follow the regulations in the hope that somehow this external behavior will somehow make a spiritual life inside me. Somehow what's going on around me will appear inside me. You don't know how it's going to happen. You hope it's going to happen, but it never will happen. Because it only happens through Christ living in us. And some of us knows these things too well. Because we've been plagued by them from the first day that we can remember going to church. And all through your life you've been bound by them and you've been deceived by them. And even today you're struggling to let go of them. You know it's not right but you can't let go. It still controls you in some way. And you continue to live a stunted, weak, anemic Christian life because of them. What are they? We've mentioned one, it's legalism. And the other one is judgmentalism. And next week we'll look at judgmentalism because these are the uh, words that are used here in the section of Scripture that we have. Paul says in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, do not handle which all concerns things that perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. In other words, he says, you make the rules. You're making the rules for yourselves. Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. Don't do that on Sunday. Don't dress like that. Don't go there. Don't go here. And somebody else is dictating to you as to what you can and cannot do. But of course, all these rules don't come from the life of Jesus in us. They are externally imposed. The word legalism, which I've already used, is thrown around fairly carelessly today. It's not a word in the New Testament as such, although the issue of legalism is right the way through the New Testament. But this morning, we want to understand why legalism looks good. But it's actually evil. Legalism is expressed mainly in two forms. Firstly, it is a means of treating biblical truth about conduct and behavior as regulations to be kept by our own power and our own strength. And we believe in keeping them so that we will earn God's favor or stay within God's favor. And you come across all sorts of different groups who live in this way. And some of them like to dress differently to show that they're part of some uh, Christian grouping or some um, understanding that we're following God's word. But it's an outward expression. And then when you talk to them, the inner side is empty. There's nothing there. It's blank. It's gone. And you say to yourself, well, why are you bothering to dress like this when you've got nothing inside you? And people think that they will please God by behaving in that way. And that legalism is present when we do the right things, but in our own strength. 
And therefore, inevitably, the legalist is pretty well always a moral person. Nothing wrong with being a moral person. Nothing wrong with people who don't tell lies, who pay their taxes, who behave themselves, drive at the speed limit. And I can see everyone sort of thinking, oh dear, that rules me out then, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? Where's my wife? Oh, she, she's head down. <laughs> they're moral people, but the sad thing is, is they're no more than that. And here's the thing. Moral people, just moral people, don't make it to heaven. And it is because of this morality that the legalist finds it very difficult to see that there's something wrong with it. Because it looks good, it sounds good, it tastes good. It seems right. And, you know, forgive me, but God's never going to turn somebody like me away, is he? I mean, I must be the sort of chap that that God wants heaven to be full of. And it's not true at all. Now, do you realize that all legalism does, and I say this graciously, and I hope the example I give will be received graciously, all legalism does is house train us. That's it. Let me explain. There's a couple and they own two cats. True story, incidentally. And they had them since they were kittens. Lovely little bundles of fluff. And when they came into the house, the couple that owned them wanted to teach them that there are certain things that cats are not to do in the house. And if they did these certain things in the house, on the carpet, for example, the cats got the, the message very, very clearly that it was totally unacceptable behavior. And before long, the cats got the message. The water bottle is sprayed at them. And they learn not to do the things like that on the carpet, they've got to go outside and dig a hole. Okay? And the cats were also taught that they could sleep on their expensive, very comfortably designer-made cushions for the cats to sleep on. That's absolutely fine. The cat can sleep there. But you don't ever get on the table. And you never jump on the counter, the kitchen counter. And the cats learn that they don't do that. And they don't jump onto the kitchen counter or the, ta or the table. And if you were to come and visit the couple and their cats, and you met their cats, you'd say, wow, well-behaved cats. In fact you'd be very impressed with the cats. You'd be impressed with their behavior. You'd be impressed with everything. And you'd never see them on the table because the cat knows that you don't jump on the table. You'd never see them on the kitchen counter because the cats know you don't go on the kitchen counter.
You'd never see them sniffing around looking for food. As long as the owners are home. As long as the owners are home. But if the owners were to leave the house in a hurry and perhaps the owners leave some frozen meat to thaw on the counter and when the owners come home there would be teeth marks in the meat. Or tongue marks in the butter. Or the corner of the cheese has even been nibbled off. How many of you have cut the bit with the tongue print on off and carried on and eaten it. I have, because there are times when you think, well, if this cat can have that, I'm, I'm having the rest. <laughs> because you see, although the cats behave perfectly when the owners are around, they've got no moral conscience about what they're doing. No moral compulsion in what they're doing. They simply don't want the consequences of not doing it. Friends, and I say this graciously, all the law can ever do is house train you. That's it. And this morning there are some of us here who are really well house trained. That's it though. It is no deeper than that. And even Christians who have been thoroughly, evangelically trained, stray. And here's the thing, and this is important. You don't realize this, but everybody else who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ knows you and knows it. Because we see it. We recognize it. You're oblivious to that. But within seconds, we know. Don't have to speak the same language. Told you many times about the girl in China in the, in the display room that I'm looking at stuff. And there's just something that told her and that told me we were believers. And she beckons me over, open the bottom drawer, and there it is. Her Mandarin Bible in the drawer. And all we have to do is just look because we recognize Jesus living in me. Jesus living in you. And it's exciting. But we don't have to say anything. You can be well house trained, but it's no deeper than that. And even Christians who've been trained or have come to church and have, have uh, we stray. And here's the thing. Everybody knows who we are. They know that when you're in church, you're a different person to when you're at home. It's amazing how sometimes I'll talk about somebody and they'll say, oh, I didn't know they went to church. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's a shame. <laughs> you mean the guy that swears? But on Sunday he doesn't? That's the reality of it. When they're behind closed doors, they behave differently. 
Because they're not driven by the life of Jesus Christ in them. And the moral compulsion that comes from his life present in us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Somebody said to me recently, he said, I don't like coming to your church because the verse at the back of the tent is so convicting and I have to sit there and read it and it just keeps on banging away at my mind and my heart and my soul. They're driven by rules. You can bring your kids up and you can really house train them well. I hope all the children here are house trained well, incidentally. But you can house train them spiritually. And many parents do this, and even churches fall into this. All they're interested in is making them right on the outside. And as long as you behave yourself, that's fine. You can have all the benefits that there are in this church if you behave yourself. Even evangelicals are good at it now. But when they leave home and they go to university, don't be shocked when within two, three, four weeks, they've jacked it all in. All this church stuff is gone. Why? Because it never was life in them. They were just well house trained. You told them what to do and what not to do. And that's how they behaved. But you didn't tell them that it has to come from the inside out. It's only house training. And Paul says to the folks there in Colossae, he says, you're falling into this legalism where you say, now look, new Christians, because remember, this is a new church. You've got to behave in a certain way. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't touch. Don't eat that. Don't drink that smack. We'll punish you for it. And at the same time, when you do the right things, we'll make it good for you. And there are churches that operate on that principle today. There are families that operate on that principle today. We'll house train you into being good Colossi, or dare I say it, good British Anglicans, or good Catholics. And if I have the nerve to say it, I would say even good Dutch Reformed Christians. That's the emphasis. But what is wrong with all this? It's this. And you should know this. It's absolutely bereft of life. There's nothing living in it. In fact, it's death. Because that's what is happening. You are spiritually dead. And you remain spiritually dead. Whilst you think that the legalistic approach that you're taking is going to do any good. Except make you into a moral person. You see, the law that God gave in the Old Testament was a very interesting, or it has a very interesting career through the Scriptures as you follow it. When God gave the law to Moses, it was something to which the whole nation was asked, will you obey all the words of this law? And they said with good conscience they will. Now remember, if you're doing the Bible reading plan, you'd have just read Ezra and Nehemiah just in, the, I think, last week, okay, and the week before. And Ezra finds the book of the law. They blow the dust off and he sets up a platform and he reads it. 
And the people's hearts, suddenly they realize what they've been doing wrong. They've been marrying other nations and things that they were told not to. They said, we'll obey the word of the law. They said with good conscience, we will. But they didn't. But that's what they said they would do. And Joshua reaffirmed the covenant, the law, is a revelation of the character of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, speaking of the law, he says, not one dot, not one tick, not one cross, not any letter will disappear from the law. The law is in very good standing until you come to the writings of Paul. And he talks about things like the curse of the law in Galatians. He talks about being in bondage to the law. And you're beginning to think to yourself, well, whatever has happened to the law? How come this has all changed? Why has something that was so good and exalted suddenly become so negative? It almost becomes a dirty word in Paul's writings. I say that as graciously as I possibly can. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law itself. Don't misunderstand me. Because the law is a revelation of the character of God. And I think that that's very important to understand that the law is not just an arbitrary set of rules and regulations. What the law does beautifully and wonderfully, and we'll look at them, just touch on this very briefly, is that it reveals God's character to us. Just give you an example. When God said, you shall not steal, it's not because stealing isn't nice that he says that, although it isn't nice. If you've had something stolen, you know it's not nice. Listening to my kids squabbling because one of them has stolen something from the other. You know, it's not nice. But that isn't the reason. It's more profound than that. It's because God is not a thief and man was made in the image of God. So do not steal. When God said to you, you shall not commit adultery, it's not because God is totally faithful. Do you see? Man is made in his image. So do not commit adultery. When God says, you shall not covet, this is because God is not greedy. Man is made in his image, so we should not be greedy. When God says, you shall not murder, God does not murder. Yes, he has the power of life and death, but he doesn't murder. And you are made in his image, and you should not murder, even in your mind. And you go through the commandments, even, for example, children obey your parents. Don't, don't young people cringe when you hear that one? You think, oh my word, I've forgotten that one. Children obey your parents. But my parents make some of the most stupid decisions and choices. And it's true. Some of them do need to review the decisions and choices that they give. Parents, for example, honor your parents. Why? Because in the Trinity, the Son says, I always do those things to please the Father. And you were created in the image of God. So children, obey your parents. When God says six days you shall labor and on the seventh day do not work, explains why. He says because God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired. The idea was not that God needed a day off after six days of hard creating. The reason why God rested was not because he was tired, but because he was finished and we are to rest in the finished work of God 
Read Hebrews 4. tells us all about it. And so the law was given to reveal God's character. And of course, God's character is what we are in our lives or what we should be. Created to express having been made in his image. And so the law is now the external description of God's character, what God's character is like. And against it, you discover, as the Israelites discovered very, very quickly, their failure. And you'll discover your failure. Now, the new covenant that Jesus came to bring, God describes back in Jeremiah 31. And he says it in this way. He says, and I'll just read it to you. It's at Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a wonderful section of scripture that is. So listen to this. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God. Now he says, I'm going to put the law, the same law, that's been on tablets of stone, cold, hard, tablets of stone. Nothing wrong with that. Everything right about it. Because you see, what we have here is not a rewriting of the law. We have a relocation of the law. Because no longer is it on tablets of cold, hard stone. But when you know and love Jesus, it's written on your heart. It's in your mind. And that's where everything changes. Because it comes from the inside out. It comes from what's written on your mind and on your heart. And then in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, we read this. When he was talking about the new covenant, he says, I, I'll put my spirit in you. Now this is absolutely breathtaking. It's all new. The Holy Spirit hadn't been placed in people like this. Not until Pentecost. I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws because the Spirit of God in us is totally consistent with the law of God. The problem is the law of God only works from the outside. All I can ever do is to be house trained. Whereas the very same requirements of the law are now written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Of God who himself never lies, never steals, never commits adultery, is never greedy. As he in us expresses the law of God through our behavior. And the end result is that we behave consistently with the law. And the source is not the law working from the outside, but it's the Spirit of God graciously working from the inside. And suddenly, you think differently. You behave differently. Your priorities are different. Everything changes. You see people differently. Even the ones that you, for, for decades, have struggled to have any nice thoughts about it changes because no longer is the law 
affecting us from an external perspective, but it's driving us and it's motivating us inside. And it's exciting. As he, in us, expresses the law of God through us in our behavior. And the end result is that we behave consistently with the law. And the pseudo, the false spiritual growth says this. Forget about the Holy Spirit of God. Forget about doing business with God. Forget about living intimately with God. Forget about knowing Jesus personally. That's what the law says. If it, sorry, that's, that's how people will approach it. Forget about living intimately with God. Don't worry about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just follow the rules. Don't worry about calling God your heavenly father. That's much too personal. He's actually a God who's holding a stick and he's ready to give you a whack across the knuckles if you do it wrong. And that's not God. Some people, and even some pastors around us, have accused our fellowship of easy believism. That's the biggest load of rubbish I've ever heard. Pseudo-spiritual growth is much easier to follow and keep. Being house-trained is easy-peasy. Quite frankly, even your dog and your cat can cope with that. But submitting all, submitting everything to Christ and allowing Jesus Christ to live in us through his Holy Spirit and being in tune with the Spirit 24-7, 365. Now that's something very different. Walking with the Lord every moment of every day it's not that it is hard because it's what brings joy. As you grow more and more to be like Jesus, as you hunger to be like Jesus. But admitting that we are sinners and confessing all to Jesus and submitting all to him is the hardest thing. Because naturally we do not want to do it. But by faith in the Savior, we're able to. So I'm going to say this, being house trained is easy believism, but being house trained will not save you. It will not bring you into the kingdom of God. And next week we look at the second form of this pseudo false faith, judgmentalism, because it goes hand in hand with legalism.